Good evening, dummies. Matt from Don't Unfriend Me. Thank you for being here. June 3rd, 7.18 p.m. Thursday. Sorry about last night. It was not feeling too well and still not feeling 100%, but the show must go on. Colorado Avalanche won last night, took a 2-0 series lead against the Knights. Ecstatic about that. Knights are a good team. They came out swinging. Avs were lucky to go away with a win, but the thing is, is that Vegas had a lot of shots, and therefore people say, oh, well, they dominated play. Well, all their shots were to the outside, so really those aren't shots that go in very often. So you can pepper the outside of the goaltender all day. If he can see it, he's going to stop it. And I have a little bit of a difference of opinion. I think the Avs were pacing themselves. I think absolutely they were being shut down, so to speak. But they were patient, like Novocaine, and they won in overtime because they just have too much talent. So we'll see what happens in Vegas. Hopefully we still won. I still think it's going to go five games, maybe four one Avs, possibly six. I think we'll steal one in Vegas and then come home and wrap it up. Either way, just figure I'd give you an update because I know you care. Go Avs. Tonight on Don't Unfriend, Don't Unfriend Me, what are we going to talk about? You think I would know the title of my own show. Fucky if you do, fucky if you don't. Dr. Fucky is in the news again, and his emails have been released. Some good, a lot bad. And we're going to go over tonight a little bit about his uh, Wuhan epidemic that I believe, or pandemic, that he had something to do with. I will link you the Dr. Fucky show right here where I did an episode on him. Is this thing on? A general gives a somewhat of a posthumous eulogy. I guess that's redundant when you say that. And his microphone was turned off. And it had to do with the Civil War. And it had to do with Memorial Day. And it was absolutely relevant to the eulogy. And unfortunately, it was censored. I'll talk to you about that tonight. And this is an interesting one. Lastly, the great ski of all time. Wayne Gretzky, talking about hockey. The reason why is because LeBron James is in the news again. The China, China lover himself. The guy with a big ingrown toenail and has to miss two games. The guy that takes the MVP trophy and the NBA championship trophy and runs off the floor with it before his team can celebrate. The guy who walks away and leaves with six minutes left in the game and decides to head to the locker room because the Phoenix Suns are just too tough. I wonder if they're going to change them to the Arizona Suns. Remember, they used to be the Phoenix Coyotes, and now they're the Arizona Coyotes. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I digress. Folks, it's going to be a good show tonight. We're going to have a good time. What would the greatest hockey player in history be called if he would have chosen not to play hockey? That's easy. It's Wayne Regretsky. Recorded. From an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Well, folks, I have spared no expense. I have uh, decided to add a laser show to my show. Hopefully that's nobody's been blinded by that. Let's see if I can get that right in the lens. There we go. Laser effects, folks. That's what we do. It's a little blue light. I get these blue blocker glasses and uh, I'm supposed to shine it in my eye. Uh, well, there we go. I'm now blinded. I have to do it with a one eye. I guess I have two eyes now. If you're counting the third eye blind, we're not going to go there. Folks, my name is Matt. Don't unfriend me. I've already said that and I... I'm here to bring you a show that really kind of skates down the middle, but also flirts a little bit left and right, depending upon the day. I am a conservative. I want to be completely clear. Like I said, my name is Matthew Spear. It's wonderful to meet you. If this is your first time at Don't Unfriend Me, you are a dummy no matter what. And that's not a, uh, a put down. Dummy stands for Don't Unfriend Me. Barstool Sports has stoolies. We have dummies. And now you know the drill. Where can you find me? Well, here's all my social tags. You can head on over to YouTube, Instagram. Twitter, which I really don't spend a lot of time on, but Facebook seems to where I lay my head most often, and also YouTube, which I'm trying to build up, but honestly, I'm not going to put any money into it. I just need it to grow naturally, so I think in about 150 years, I should have 150 followers, but stop on by, give me a like, follow, share. It helps every single time you do that, and if you are not a social media person, stop on my website at www.dontunfriendme.com. Say hello, leave a love heart, whatever. Watch my show there if you hate the social media hustle and bustle. Fucky if you do, fucky if you don't. Senator Rand Paul 
has been investigating COVID-19 for quite a while. He's not happy. He's also a doctor, and the man knows what he's talking about. I'm not the biggest fan of all time of Rand Paul, but I do believe that he his heart's in the right place. Quote, I'm very worried that this stuff still goes on and that the U.S. government has been funding it. Senator Rand Paul shared two words in response to news of unearthed emails from Dr. Anthony Fucky. Thousands of emails obtained by BuzzFeed News and hundreds more reviewed. The Washington Post, through the Freedom of Information Act, thank God, the FOIA, requests shows Fauci's responses to be both critiques and high praise as he worked to communicate the dangers of COVID-19 to the U.S. as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Wow, that's a long one. Told you, Paul wrote in a Tuesday tweet with the hashtag fire Fauci. I've got a meme up. Give it a like. It's also doing pretty well. Share the hell out of it. I happen to agree, fire fucky. He added in another tweet, can't wait to see the media try to spin the Fauci FOIA emails. And they already have begun. All the major pundits of the Democratic machine have been apologizing and steering people off course about Dr. Fucky. Well, what is the truth? Did he make efforts to fund Wuhan? And if he did, is he held culpable? Well, let's find out. Paul has repeatedly criticized Fauci on social media and in interviews for his comments on herd immunity, wearing masks even after getting the COVID-19 vaccine, and his dismissal of a theory suggesting COVID-19 may have originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China that has gained more credibility among members of the media in recent weeks despite earlier snubbing of the idea. Paul has also condemned Fauci's claim made during a May 25th congressional hearing that a $600,000 federal grant from NIAID did not directly fund the lab's gain-of-function research, which is research that involves modifying a virus to make it more infectious amongst humans. That is what gain-of-function is. We'll talk a little bit about that tonight. First, I want you to watch the video and the exchange between these two. They don't like each other. And honestly, they're both smart men, but Fauci is a complete fucko. Ron Paul's son is, uh, is a decent human being. He's not... A jerk. He comes on the wrong side of things, but he overall he's a libertarian and he believes in limited government and doesn't believe in nationalism. He doesn't believe in getting involved in foreign affairs, leave people by their own accord, all the things that most libertarians believe. And I happen to believe a lot of what he does too. And he comes after Fucky in spades. And I love what he does here. Watch this video. Pete, again, the NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain of function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Okay, so those words, we didn't give $600,000 to Wuhan. We didn't fund any of this. Well, this is the catch-22. This is the lie. See, Fauci is a politician first. Don't kid yourself. I don't care if he has doctor in front of his name or not. It is. It should be R or D. And in this case, this guy is an opportunist, just like James Comey. He rides the fences of whoever's in power. You remember how loyal he was to Trump, and now he's loyal to Biden. The man is a scumbag, and honestly, he's a flip-flopper. I have had many shows on what a douchebag this guy is, but listen to how plausible deniability, and it's like when someone comes to you and says, hey, did you kill your wife on Thursday? No, I didn't. Wait, you didn't kill your wife on Thursday? No. Oh, well, okay, you're, you're free to go. And then walking down the street, humming a tune, says, yes, but I did it on Friday. That's Dr. Fucky. He will, if you don't say and ask a question that is absolutely direct with the right information, plausible deniability is where he will delve into. Let's listen to this express of this exchange between him and Mr. Paul. In the U.S., we have 11 labs doing it, and you have allowed it here. We have a committee to do it, but the committee has granted every exemption. You're, you're fooling with Mother Nature here. You're allowing super viruses to be created with a 15% mortality. It's very dangerous. I think it was a huge mistake to share this with China. And it's a huge mistake to allow this to continue in the United States. And we should be very careful to investigate where this virus came from. I fully- So Fauci at this point is going to go ahead and go into what he always does, which is a spinning the words, spin, spin, spin. The man doesn't know how to answer a direct question to save his life. So he's going to go ahead and spin this and say, no, 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 no. We didn't fund anything. But indirectly, they did. And this has been proven through his emails, which we'll go over tonight. We agree that you should investigate where the virus came from. But again, we have not funded gain-of-function research on this virus 
in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, no matter how many times. So he's parsing words, and that's what Rand Paul's going to say. He's parsing words. It's kind of like Bill Clinton during the sex thing. Tell me what to, how to, how to define it. Can you define it for me? Because I just rubbed Monica's head and I gave her a little uh, cigar in the pussy. I, I don't understand what Fauci is trying to prove here. Everyone knows this happened. Everyone knows that he went over to China. Everyone knows that this funding went to China and that some of these proxies happened in the United States and then were given to the Wuhan labs. That's not the question. The question is, why won't he admit it? And this is where Rand Paul just nails him to the wall. You say it, there it was research. Happen. There was research done with Dr. Xi and Dr. Barrick. They have collaborated on gain-of-function research where they enhanced the SARS virus to infect human airway cells, and they did it by merging a new spike protein on it. That is gain-of-function. That was joint research between the Wuhan Institute and Dr. Barrick. You can't deny it. Senator Paul, your time. So what comes down to is simply this, is Rand Paul has got a cross to bear with Dr. Fucky. And most people do because the man, like I said, flip-flops. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. This is a major virus. Oh, no, it's nothing to worry about. He just parrots, and he doesn't really know what he's talking about. And the man couldn't pitch a baseball to save his life. This grant went to a group called the EcoHealth Alliance, which then paid the Wuhan Institute of Virology to study the risk that bat coronaviruses could infect humans. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, said earlier in the hearing that the taxpayer-funded grant to EcoHealth and the Wuhan Institute of Virology was not approved to conduct gain-of-function research, but that doesn't matter. Just like we didn't mean to run guns in, 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 in down to Mexico and for them are the Iran-Contra hearings and have these be used against American soldiers or DEA agents or Border Patrol, but it happened. This is what happens. Stupid prizes Stupid decisions, all of those are synonymous with each other. You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Some Republicans, including Paul, maintain that the NIAID, that money under Fauci's purview, did in fact go to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to conduct gain-of-function research, which raises ethical safety and security concerns, according to some politicians and scientists. Quote, Fauci acknowledged, oh, I'm quoting here, sorry, Fauci acknowledged that a gain-of-function supervirus could escape a lab and cause a pandemic, but that it is worth the risk. His naivety should disqualify him from government service. Paul wrote in a May 28th tweet responding to Fucky's comments during the House Appropriations Committee subcommittee hearing. Collins dismissed the so-called lab leak theory as a conspiracy in an April email to Fauci obtained by BuzzFeed, as did all of the media, and they've been toting this ever since. In an April 17th email obtained by the outlet, Fucky said coronavirus mutations that led to COVID-19 are totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human, rather than a lab leak. I'm not sure how he could know that. Peter Daszak, president of EcoHealth, personally thanked Fucky for supporting evidence that COVID-19 came from an animal rather than the Wuhan lab in an April 18th, 2020 email obtained by BuzzFeed. Quote, I just wanted to say a personal thank you on behalf of our staff and collaborators, as Keith Olbermann would say, for publicly standing up and stating the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19 from a bat to human spillover. Not a lab release from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Dazik wrote to Fauci. That sounds like one of those emails that you kind of put in there for CYA, covering your ass. Never will be seen by man unless it actually he is accused of something. Interesting. Get out of jail free card. Monopoly is what that's called. He praised the NIAID director's comments as brave, saying they will help dispel the myths being spun around the virus's origins. Many thanks for your kind note, Fauci responded. The NIAID director said during the May 25th House Appropriations Committee subcommittee hearing that he has no objections to an investigation of China's early handling of the pandemic. Fauci also said in the emails BuzzFeed released that the store-bought mask would not be completely effective in preventing COVID-19. Well, that's not what we heard. Oh, actually, we did. But then you walked it back seven different times. In a February response to an email query about wearing masks while traveling via plane, Fauci said masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infection to people who are not infected, rather than protecting unaffected people from acquiring infection. What the fuck are you talking about? This is why this guy is a fucking moron. 
Let me read it again, just in case maybe it's us. Maybe, maybe it's us. Maybe we really are dummies. Maybe we're stupid. Let's do it. Masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infection to people who are not infected rather than protecting unaffected people from acquiring infection. No, it's no fucking stupid. He added that the typical mask you buy in a drugstore is not really effective in keeping out virus, which is small enough to pass through material. Oh my heavens and Lord almighty, how many times did I say that? And I made the analogy that you're throwing a freaking tiny tic-tac through a chain link fence. I've done the video. I'm going to try to link it somewhere in here. This is just crap. And everyone's like, oh, you stop. You're a hater. You're just a lib- You're a Republican. And you, you just, and you're a Trump dude. Tell me what Trump was wrong about. Oh, wait. Tell me, tell me what he was wrong about. Tell me what the guy got wrong. And you're going to make the election. Just wait. It'll out. It'll out someday, man. Some deep throat will come out and we'll find out about it. But everything this guy has called, and I can go through the litany. I've done show after show. I don't care what you think about him personally, but dude, he's always right. I've said dude like seven times. Quote, it might, however, provide some slight benefit to keep out gross droplets if someone coughs or sneezes on you, he said, adding, I do not recommend that you wear a mask, particularly since you are going to be and to uh, going to a very low risk location. The emails show an evolution of Fauci's thinking and flip flopping on certain COVID-19 related subjects between the winter and spring of 2020 when the virus first came to the U.S. Bullshit. It was here in November before. The spring of 2021, as infection numbers began to decrease significantly as more and more people received their vaccines, the NIAID director has been praised as a hero among some politicians and pundits and criticized by others for putting out conflicting information. May 23rd, Wall Street Journal report cited previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence documents that found some of the Wuhan Institute of Virology workers who fell ill in 2019 required hospital care, lending weight to what some have dubbed the lab leak theory. This was in November. The State Department acknowledged in January 2021 the United States government has reason to believe that the several researchers inside the WIV became sick in autumn of 2019. It found that they would experience symptoms consistent with both COVID-19 and common seasonal illness. The Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is one of China's top virus research labs, built an archive of genetic information about bat coronavirus. After the 2003 outbreak of the severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, and has faced criticism over its transparency throughout the pandemic, the journal reported that the veracity of the intelligence is being debated by current and former officials. At least one told the paper that further analysis is needed since the evidence was provided by foreign contacts. Another source told the paper that the evidence seems to be spot on and was exquisite quality. The paper reported that China has denied any allegation that the virus was somehow leaked from the lab. China accused the U.S. on Sunday of continuing its effort to hype the lab leak theory. The U.S. stopped funding gain-of-function research. Then it started again. In 2019, Science Magazine broke this news that the U.S. government resumed funding two controversial experiments. One was the bird flu, which was a little more uh, transmissible. The two experiments had been on hold since 2012 because there was this fierce debate in the virology community about gain-of-function research. In 2014, the U.S. government, under the Obama administration, declared a moratorium on such research. Good. One of the good things President Obama did, I happen to agree. That year was a bad one on the biohazard front. In 2014, June, as many as 75 scientists at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention were exposed to anthrax. A few weeks later, Food and Drug Administration officials ran across 16 forgotten vials of smallpox in storage. Meanwhile, the largest, most severe, and most complex Ebola outbreak in history was raging across West Africa. And the first patient to be diagnosed in the U.S. had just been announced. It was in that context that scientists and biosecurity experts found themselves embroiled in a debate about gain-of-function research. The scientists who do this kind of research argue that we can better anticipate deadly diseases by making diseases deadlier in the lab. So you can study gun violence by going out and shooting people with bigger guns. Got it. 
But many people at the time and since have become increasingly convinced that the potential research benefits, which look limited, just don't outweigh the risk of kicking off the next deadly pandemic ourselves that will become the proverbial meteorite that wiped out the dinosaurs. While internally divided, the U.S. government came down on the side of caution at the time. It announced a moratorium on funding gain-of-function research, putting potentially dangerous experiments on hold so the world could discuss the risks and this research entailed. But in 2017, the government, of course, under the Trump administration, which is what they have to do, Trump, I bet if you go and take a look at this, and he has said repeatedly, has not made comment on this. In fact, there was no press conference. There was no major release that they were starting this back up. In fact, I promise you, this is one of the hundreds of thousands of things that happen every single day in the government that Trump doesn't see. But it should be. And I think you should be held culpable for it. I absolutely think gain of research is terrifying. The release of these guidelines for gain-of-function research is signaled an end to the Blake moratorium, and the news from 2019 suggests that the dangerous projects were and are proceeding. Experts in biosecurity are concerned the field is heading toward a mistake that could kill innocent people. They argue that to move ahead with research like this, there should be transparency, a process with global stakeholders at the table. After all, if anything goes wrong, the mess we'll face will certainly be a global one. Despite the risk involved, Fauci called gain-of-function experiments important work in his 2012 writing. And here's a quote which shows him backpedaling. But this is his policy, which went against President Obama's ideals and believed this all along. And when President Trump came in, most assuredly said, let's go ahead and reverse our position in 2017. And that is his job. This is what he wrote. In an unlikely but conceivable turn of events, what if that scientist becomes infected with the virus, which leads to an outbreak and ultimately triggers a pandemic? Hmm. Many ask reasonable questions. Given the possibility of such a scenario, however remote, obviously not that remote, should the initial experiments have been performed and or published in the first place? And what were the processes involved in this decision? Scientists working in this field might say, as indeed I have said, that the benefits of such experiments and the resulting knowledge outweigh the risks. It is more likely that a pandemic would occur in nature, and the need to stay ahead of such a threat is a primary reason for performing an experiment that might appear to be risky. Within the research community, this is still a quote, by the way, within the research community, many have expressed concern that important research progress could come to a halt just because of the fear that somewhere, someone might attempt to replicate these experiments sloppily. This is a valid concern. Does it almost seem like this guy absolutely wanted gain of research to continue? And when Donald Trump came in the office, he found the opportune moment. Now, do I believe that Dr. Fauci is the, the man with the mustache and is plotting world domination by releasing a disease? No. But I don't think also we, by funding Iran and the Iran and the Contra, inadvertently led to terrorism around the world and the, the, the building of a nuclear bomb and funding Iran. I don't think by pumping money into Iraq at an early onset of what was supposed to be a democracy or funding dictators in Iraq or funding the Taliban in Afghanistan or actually funding Afghan troops that were invading and Russians and the, and the Greeks and funding CIA operations in Greece to run a proxy war. These things have outcomes. They create problems. And if you look at any of the jihadists out there, whether it be ISIS or Al-Qaeda or any of the others there was all American involvement at one point or another. Is that a direct responsibility for our policy and our overseas doctrine? No, but when we get involved and lay in bed with dogs, we pick up fleas. And I promise you this, we were working in cohorts with the Wuhan lab and other labs across the country because in 2012, he laid out the plan of why it was important, which is why it started in 2017. And if you're going to play grab ass and play God with deadly viruses, you're going to have deadly consequences. Once again, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, play grab ass with deadly viruses, wipe out the fucking planet. It doesn't take that much to happen. Has anyone seen the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman? Freaking scary. Read the book. It's even worse. It predicted this. 
If you were looking for a good read to scare the living shit out of you where you're not going to sleep for a week, read that book. Dr. Fucky absolutely was the head of the snake when it came to this. This research most assuredly happened in a lab. And the cover story of how it was created came out days, days after we found this. The market, the bats, the lineage, the, the lineology of this entire disease was laid out about how it escaped so very quickly. And I'll tell you in intelligence, we call that a cover story. Anything that comes out that quick is fabricated. I don't believe it. I believe this is a man-made disease. I believe that's how China eradicated it so quickly in their populace, even though it came from that area. And we know it did. That's where it originated from. And they were traveling all over. When I was coming out of San Francisco airport, I had some Chinese nationals on my plane. And then I told you I had experienced the symptoms and what felt to be described as COVID early before we hit 2020, like they said. And I'll be honest with you. I hardly wear a mask. I don't believe I was at risk after that. And I believe most people who get it aren't because they're inoculated to it. Whether you get the shot or whether you get it and then you recover, your body creates antibodies. But if I didn't have it, I most assuredly would have gotten it since then. Every time I got a haircut, I was not masked up. Every time I went out to the grocery store, I refused to mask up. Every time I was in the car with other people, I just didn't wear a mask unless I absolutely had to. Does that mean that in no way, shape, or form... Does that mean that I didn't have it and I just got lucky? Yeah, it's possible. But I haven't had a vaccine. I had all the symptoms of it in November, and I haven't gotten it since. My family hasn't gotten it either. But we all experienced uh, symptoms between November and January before this thing was even supposedly a thing. It's a, there's a lot of questions. I wish the testing was there so I could have found out, but none of us knew what was going on. Is this thing on... In Hudson, Ohio, organizers for a Memorial Day ceremony turned off a speaker's microphone when this former U.S. Army officer began talking about how freed black slaves had honored fallen soldiers soon after the Civil War. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Barnard Kempter said he included the story in his speech because he wanted to share the history of how Memorial Day originated. But organizers of the ceremony in Hudson, Ohio, said that part of the speech was not relevant to the program's theme of honoring the city's veterans. Cindy Sucklin. Maybe it's Su Chan. Maybe it's Sucky. Maybe she's related to Jen Sucky. Cindy Sucklin, chair of the Memorial Day Parade Committee and president of the Hudson American Legion Auxiliary, she sounds completely fucking useless already, I, I just promise you, said it was either she or Jim Garrison, adjunct the American Legion Post 464. Jim Garrison, who was the only person to bring a case against the John F. Kennedy assassination and Clay Shaw, also known as Clay Bertrand? No. I know a lot about the John F. Kennedy assassination. That's one we should do a show on someday. That would be 15, 20 hours who turned down the audio the Akron Beacon Journal reported. The Ohio American Legion said Thursday that it was investigating. The American Legion deplores racism and reveres the Constitution. The organization's national, national commander, James W. Bill Oxford, said in a statement, we salute Lieutenant Colonel Kempter's service and his moving remarks about the history of Memorial Day and the important role played by black Americans in honoring our fallen heroes. We regret any actions taken that detracts from this important message. In the days before the ceremony, Sucken said she reviewed the speech and asked Kempter to remove certain portions. Censorship. Fantastic. Kempter said he didn't see the suggested changes in time to rewrite the speech and talked with a Hudson public official who told him not to change it. Kempter said he was disappointed that the organizers silenced two minutes of his 11-minute speech, during which he talked about how former slaves and freed black men exhumed the remains of more than 200 Union soldiers from a mass grave in Charleston, South Carolina, and gave them a proper burial. This is not the same country I fought for, said Kempter, who spent 30 years in the army and served in the Persian Gulf War. 
The decision to turn off the audio disrespected Kempter and all veterans. Hudson's mayor and city council said in a statement, which also said the city is committed to addressing issues of systemic racism and tolerance. Well, what does this have to do with racism and tolerance? Quote, veterans have done everything we have asked of them during their service to this country, and this tarnished what should have been a celebration of their service, the statement said. Bullshit. History is, oh, forget it. Memorial Day was born out of necessity after the American Civil War. A battered United States was faced with the task of burying and honoring the 600,000 to 800,000 Union and Confederate soldiers who had died in the single bloodiest military conflict in American history. And this frustrates me. If we've, anybody who's watched Ken Burns' documentary knows this story. So we decided to do a little research. Because this light colonel has every right to say whatever he wanted. And here's the thing. Facts don't give a shit about your feelings, to quote when Ben Shapiro says it a little nicer than that. But it's true. They don't care about your feelings. And these are facts. So let's find out. Is this American history or is this bunk? Is this just propaganda from some light colonel who's a closet Nazi? No, because this is a fact. The first national commemoration of Memorial Day was held in Arlington National Cemetery. This was May 30th, 1868, (coughs) where both Union and Confederate soldiers were buried. Several towns and cities across America claim to have observed their own earlier versions of Memorial Day, or what I told you the other night was Decoration Day. And this was as early as 1866. The earlier name is derived from the fact that decorating graves was and remains a central activity of Memorial Day, whether it be a wreath or flowers or a token. But it wasn't until a remarkable discovery in Harvard University archive that late 1990s that historians learned about a Memorial Day commemoration organized by a group of black people freed from enslavement less than a month after the Confederacy surrendered in 1865. Back in 1996, David Blight was a professor of American history at Yale. He was researching a book on the Civil War when he had one of those once-in-a-career eureka moments. A curator at Harvard's Houghton Library asked if he wanted to look through two boxes of unsorted material from Union veterans. Quote, there was a file labeled First Decoration Day, remembers Blight, still amazed at his good fortune. And inside on a piece of cardboard was a narrative handwritten by an old veteran, plus a date of referencing an article in the New York Tribune. I wonder if it was lefty at the time. Sorry. That narrative told the essence of the story that I ended up telling in my book of, his, of this March on the racetrack in 1865, unquote. The racetrack in question is the Washington Race Course and Jockey Club in Charleston, South Carolina. In the late stages of the Civil War, the Confederate Army transformed the formerly posh country club into a makeshift prison for Union soldiers. More than 260 Union soldiers died from disease and exposure while being held in the racetrack's open-air infield. Their bodies were hastily buried in a mass grave behind the grandstands. When Charleston fell and Confederate troops evacuated the badly damaged city, those freed from enslavement remained. One of the first things those emancipated men and women did was to give the fallen Union prisoners a proper burial. They exhumed the mass grave and reburied the bodies in a new cemetery with a tall whitewashed fence inscribed with the words martyrs of the race course. Then on May 1st, 1865, something even more extraordinary happened. According to two reports that Blight found in the New York Tribune and the Charleston Courier, a crowd of 10,000 people, mostly freed slaves with some white missionaries, staged a parade around the racetrack. 3,000 black schoolchildren carried bouquets of flowers and sang John Brown's body. Members of the famed 54th Massachusetts, give them hell, 54th! and other black Union regiments were in attendance and performed double-time marches. Black ministers recited verses from the Bible. If the news reports are accurate, the 1865 gathering at the Charlestown Racetrack would be the earliest Memorial Day commemoration on record. Blight excitedly called the Avery Institute of African American History and Culture of College of Charlestown, looking for more information on the historic event. Quote, I've never heard of it. They told me, says Blight, this never happened. 
but it was clear from the newspaper reports that a Memorial Day observance was organized by freed slaves in Charleston at least a year before other U.S. cities and three years before the first national observance. How had this been lost in history for over a century? This was a story that had really suppressed both in the local memory and certainly the national memory. But nobody who had witnessed it could ever have forgotten it. What happened? So Blight asked that question of himself, and he kept digging for more information, but the only other mention he found of the racetrack event was in a 1916 correspondence sent from a woman's Civil Civil War Historical Society in New Orleans to its sister chapter in Charleston, asking about a big parade of freed slaves on a horse track at the end of the war. Quote, I regret that I was unable to gather any official information to answer this, wrote the Charleston Society's president. That's such a telling statement, says Blight. The woman who wrote that letter may not have known about it, but the fact that she didn't tells the story. Once the war was over and Charleston was rebuilt in the 1880s, the city's white residents likely had little interest in remembering an event held by former enslaved people to celebrate the Union dead. It didn't fit their version of what the war was all about, says Blight. In time, the old horse track and country club was torn down, and thanks to a gift from a wealthy northern patron, the Union soldiers' graves were moved from the humbled white fence graveyard in Charlestown to Beaufort National Cemetery. By the time Blight was rummaging through the Harvard archives in 1996, the story of the first Memorial Day had been entirely forgotten, or perhaps not entirely. After his book Race and Reunion was published in 2001, Blight gave a talk about Memorial Day at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, and after it was finished, an older black woman approached him. You mean that story is true? The woman asked Blight. I grew up in Charlestown, and my granddaddy used to tell us this story of a parade at the old racetrack, and we never knew whether to believe him or not. You mean it's true? For Blight, it's less important whether the 1865 commemoration of Martyrs of the Racecourse is officially recognized as the first Memorial Day. It's the fact that this occurred in Charleston at a cemetery site for the Union dead in the city where the Civil War had begun, says Blight, and that it was organized and done by African-American former slaves is what gives it such poignancy. The narrative is, is that everything that happened in the Civil War was about racism, was about slavery, and that's not the truth. If black soldiers can show up and fight against the South, if former free slaves can show up and celebrate and care for Union soldiers, what does it say about us today when we can't even have a conversation together without bringing up the left or the right or defriending each other? That's what this show is all about. It's not about don't block me. It's not about who has the most friends on Facebook. This has nothing to do with it. The question is, have you lost a friendship over politics? And it's as arbitrary as anything else. It's not worth it. I say all the time, deposits and withdrawal. If I give you 90% and I take away 10%, do you focus on the 10 or do you really focus on the 90 The same thing is with relationships. Find someone who you've broken a relationship with. Stop listening to the media. Stop listening to the censors because the history is clear. And it's there if you want to look it up. But if we continue to have the media do our job for us, we're asking to be deceived. We're asking to remain woefully ignorant of our culture because it isn't black culture or white culture or brown culture or green or yellow It's American history, and it's there for you, and it's not being taught in our schools, and it's not being put on the front page of Facebook, but it is still here for you to learn. All you have to do is take the first step. All you have to do is unplug from the matrix, so to speak, and do your own digging. Don't trust me. Go look it up yourself. But to say that there was a hatred amongst blacks and whites across the United States during that time period is an absolute fallacy. It's a whole nother conversation. But once again, this is what censorship breeds. It breeds ignorance, ineptitude, and falsities. And once you start that, and once you erase history, you will never know the truth again. And what is past is prologue, most assuredly, when none of us remember it. The great ski of all time. LeBron James is a pussy. Sorry. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player. So was Bill Russell. 
So is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in a lot of sense. Shaquille O'Neal was fantastic. Kobe. And LeBron is an amazing player. And yes, by points, he is right there. But there are so many things that he does that draws attention away. His politics. The way he treats his teammates. His humility, which he has none. And I am here to say that LeBron James, Jack Nicholas. Mike Tyson, Rocky Marciano, Babe Ruth, Mark McGuire, Asterix, Sammy Sosa, Asterix, Oral Hershiser, Sandy Koufax, AJ Foyt, Rick Mears. What am I forgetting? Oh, Roger Staubach, Fran Tarkington, Barry Sanders, Walter Payton, Gail Sayers. All of the greats. Wayne Gretzky is the greatest. He is the greatest. It may feel like a bold claim, but it's not. I know my sports. I love sports. I adore them. Wayne Gretzky is the greatest athlete in the history of team sports, period. And I understand there's an argument to be made for somebody in an individual sport. I'd be willing to hear that about Michael Phelps, too, or Serena Williams, or Tiger Woods. I don't know. I've never quite figured out how to compare individual athletes to those who have to rely upon and lift teammates. And there are plenty of sports where it's not an individual effort. And nobody has ever come close to both producing and elevating a team the way Wayne Gretzky did. The numbers are freaking insane, and here you are. Gretzky has more assists, 1,963 assists, where he either had a third or a second touch to the puck where it went in the net. Then Yaramir Yager, second all-time, has points at 1,921, which means goals and assists. He has more assists than anyone has goals and assists. But Gretzky also scored 894 goals in 1,487 games, 93 more than Gordie Howe, who played 1,767 games, Old Man River, and 128 more than Yager, who appeared in 1,733 games. He won the Hart Trophy, hockey's MVP, nine times. Nine times. He won the Art Ross, given to the player with the most points, 10 times. 19 pieces of hardware that some people are lucky to win once or twice in their career. Gretzky also holds the record for most goals, assists, and points in the playoffs, again by a wide margin. He had 382, while Marc Messier, a longtime teammate, had 295, and Marc Messier absolutely, most assuredly benefited from being on the same line as Gretzky. Nobody has ever excelled the way Gretzky did. Maybe an argument can be made for Babe Ruth, but that was truly a different era, different time, and had no black athletes. There's a big difference. His point total of 2,857 still soars above Yager, a baseball player hoping to break Barry Bond's home run record of 762 by such a margin would need to hit nearly 1,000 home runs. 1,000! And nobody is threatening to come close to Gretzky anytime soon. He averaged 1.92 points per game. Sidney Crosby is at, a, is at 1.29 and turns 32 this week. Nathan McKinnon, Colorado Avalanche, is right behind with like a 1.39. He's number four. Go Nate. He still won't catch Gretzky. And Nathan McKinnon is probably the purest goal scorer and overall two-way player in the game. It's true that our caveats to all this, Gretzky played in an era when NHL teams didn't play much defense. Goalies were smaller, wore less padding, and hadn't developed techniques for stopping the puck. Yet they often appeared to just be standing there, hoping. His teams were stacked. Those arguments are all well known to hockey fans as Gretzky's stat line. So too are the cases made for other players who might join the discussion. How was a more well-rounded, more physical Bobby Orr change the game by being the best player on the ice as a defenseman who would roam anywhere? And injuries kept him from being as good as he could have been. Mario Lemieux was also waylaid by cancer and injuries and absolutely probably would have done better than Wayne Gretzky if he could have stand the longevity. But Mario Lemieux also used his fists and also was a physical player. And Wayne Gretzky was a finesse player. 
and he had thugs all around him that protected him. Nobody could catch Gretzky. People say, why didn't they just hit him? Because they couldn't catch him. Yet none of those things really resonate. Gretzky transcended the game. Yes, scoring the way was way up during his era, but he still did it far better than anyone. And those who came close often did so because they played with Gretzky. That era was also ridiculously violent and featured plenty of goons running around trying to squash the six foot, 185 pound Gretzky. And he managed to avoid them all with help from enforcers, of course. Gretzky led the Edmonton Oilers to four Stanley Cups, then changed the perception of hockey in the United States almost instantaneously upon being traded to the Los Angeles Kings, almost against his will. The man cried when he was traded, but it was what was good for hockey. It was either save hockey by bringing it to America or it won't survive. He was charming and he was handsome and he played aesthetically pleasing hockey and suddenly the NHL was pushing into southern markets and had solidified itself as one of the big four sports leagues. Gretzky is a horrible owner. He is a horrible coach and he needs to go back to doing commentary or something else. The guy's a soup sandwich when it comes to management. None of his teams have been successful. Arizona is still suffering from his tutelage. But Gretzky did all this without any clear physical advantages when compared to his peers. He certainly wasn't the biggest or the strongest, but he also wasn't the fastest. His shot wasn't the hardest. His teams won, and he scored or set up goals almost entirely because of his hockey IQ and guile. He thought the game at a level far beyond anyone before or after him. He coined the phrase by his actions, play where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. Everything he did with his stick was magic. He didn't have off nights. He didn't have bad games. He didn't give up errant passes. He didn't lay himself into checks. He didn't go off sides. He led the team. And when he came on the ice, I don't care who was against him, that team changed. He also dealt with these insane expectations. We tend to like to pretend that hype is a recent creation, that LeBron James being annotated as a high school player kicked off some trend. No, Gretzky was being written and talked about in Canada as a 10-year-old. And the hype built from there, he exceeded all of it somehow. His first freaking, the first freaking thing that you heard about Wayne Gretzky when he was six. Look at his six-year-old, his puck handling skills. He, he, he snipes from afar. The man's everywhere. His play behind the net is incredible at six. Here's the thing about Gretzky too. As much as I'm like gushing over him here, and I don't even like Gretzky. I'll be honest with you. If I had to choose the greatest player of all time, I would have to put it up there with Yarmir Yager or Mario Lemieux. Those are two, probably two of my favorites. And Peter Forsberg, even though he's really not in the conversation. As much as I'm gushing over him, I'm not sure if you gave me a real chance to convince you here. But if you said, Matt, you could draft any player in history to start with my team, and, and that I would take him. Lemieux was just so graceful and skilled. Connor McDavid looks like he was created to skate and score. And as somebody who grew up in the 1990s, watching the Avalanche and the Quebec Nordiques, I'll never not think about Eric Lindros and what he could have been and that monumental trade for Peter Forsberg that brought him into our league. And if he just maybe would have kept his head up, what would have happened? He probably would have been one of the best power players in the game. It's possible to doubt Gretzky still, even though he put up every number you could ask him to and took his teams to championships. There remains something unbelievable about it all. I look at the clips of him, and even as a young player, it feels like I'm not watching a hockey prodigy, but instead the guy who shows up at your pickup basketball game wearing 20-year-old umbros and a headband and walking with a pronounced limp, only to go on to score 20 and lock you down on defense. A film I reviewed late last year attempted to make sense of Gretzky in search of greatness from director Gabe Polsky. It presents the theory that greatness in sports comes not from repetition like we see in structured practices, but through artistry and passion. Gretzky is held up as an example and in an interview agrees with the premise. He loved the game so much that he continued to work at it and at playing it beautifully, and that passion was never sapped by an overbearing coach. The narrative, I have to admit, feels kind of comforting. There's a famous story about Gretzky sitting in front of the TV, tracing the path of the puck and absorbing on some subconscious level how the game of hockey flows. But also legend are the stories of him relentlessly playing on the backyard rink in the dying light of day, doodling with the puck and pretending to score goals in the Stanley Cup final. And then he did that better than anyone. 
It's corny in 2019 to be enamored with the idea that love of the game can make the difference. Wayne Gretzky decided to do something completely different than he did before. He got into ownership. He tried his hand at coaching, and he wasn't great at it. The great one had failed. And now in 2021, he's going to go into broadcasting, and he most assuredly could fail at that too. He doesn't have an on-air presence about him that I enjoy. But when I look at his stance and the possession numbers and think about controlled exits and entries all the time, and I know that Gretzky probably wasn't a possession monster, but I think he probably could have been if he wanted to be. For as much as I like understanding the game on a higher level now, and I'm always going to hold on to the fact that Gretzky is at once so far and above everyone who ever played the game, but ultimately remains hard to decipher or explain. I know hockey. I will put my knowledge against anybody. I will put my stats, everything I know about the game, the Stanley Cup winners, the players, against anybody. I live, eat, and breathe the game, and it comes naturally for me. I don't have to look it up. I just remember. I can predict when a goal is going to happen 10 to 15 seconds before it does. My wife will tell you I called the goal with Ranton last night in the game winner against Vegas. I see things before they happen in hockey. It's not all the time. It's occasional. And I'll predict things. I said the score is going to be 3-2. It went reversed. I thought the Knights were going to win last night. That's definitely a skill set. Gretzky did that with everything. He never failed. As good as I can be occasionally, as good as he was always. Because really, truly, any of us who search for the root of greatness do so also hoping we get to continue believing in magic. And Wayne Gretzky indeed was magical. He is, was, and always will be the great one. And when you are the great one, nobody gives a shit about number two. And LeBron and Michael and Tarkington and Holyfield and Tyson and Marciano, Babe Ruth, and all of the greats are certainly number two to the great Wayne Gretzky. Folks, that's it for my show tonight. It was a long one. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for watching tonight. Got a little animated and heated. Thank you for letting me talk a little bit about sports. I kept it at the end in case you wanted to skip it, but hopefully that was fun enough. Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1. Veteran Crisis Hotline. It's there for our veterans, but it's also there for you. They don't care whether you're a veteran. You can call and get the help you need. 22 veterans commit suicide a day. It's way too many. They need your help. Please reach out. Make a phone call. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Traumatic brain injury, PTS, anxiety, stress, depression, all of these things impact veterans differently than it does civilians. They've seen and done things that are incredible, but incredibly tragic. Please help a vet. If they won't call, please give them my address at donutfriendly.com. They can click the VCL link at the top of the page, be connected via Skype operator or phone call. And once again, if you are a civilian, you can do the same. They'll turn nobody away. That is their job to help. Folks, that is it for 162. I'll be back tomorrow for 163. My back basically feels like a truck hit it, and I am going to go take a break, and I appreciate you for stopping by. We will see you tomorrow. Have a good night.